Episode 371 of the Bowery Boys, A Visit to Little Syria, An Immigrant Story. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there, welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. Now, we had told the stories of many different groups of immigrants who have made New York their home, particularly in the late 19th century. But we have never yet told you a story like the one that we're about to share with you. Starting in the 1880s, people from the Middle East began arriving at New York's immigrant processing station. Immigrants from greater Syria which at the time was a part of the Ottoman Empire. They soon settled in a neighborhood near the waterfront that would be referred to as Little Syria, although the Syrians themselves would have called it the Syrian Colony or Syrian Quarter. Perhaps you'll be surprised to find out where this neighborhood was. The streets and blocks just south of today's World Trade Center area and just north of Battery Park, a forgotten neighborhood of Lower Manhattan. Now, several months ago, we released an episode on the construction of the World Trade Center. Uh, That was episode 350. And in that show, we did discuss uh, what occupied this area of Manhattan before the towers first started going up. So this story today is a bit of a prequel to that show, but so much more. Yes, because these Syrian immigrants didn't just transform Manhattan, they also created a rich Middle Eastern community in Brooklyn, also, interestingly, near a waterfront district. Mm -hmm. But Tom, this is also a show about literature, about publishing, about jewelry. And about food, glorious food history. (laughs) Um, And as a delicious treat at the end of the show, we'll be headed to a business that traces itself back to the streets of Little Syria and to uh, Brooklyn's Middle Eastern District on Atlantic Avenue. We're going to talk olives and spices, nuts and cheeses. That's right. We're going to Sahadi's. Don't forget the hummus, Tom. Uh, Never forget the hummus. (laughs) So who were these Syrian immigrants who made their home here in New York? Why did they arrive? What were their lives like? And although this neighborhood truly is very long gone, What buildings still remain of this extraordinary district? Join us as we embark on a very special visit to the Syrians of Old New York. So today, Greg, we are talking about a neighborhood that was located south of today's World Trade Center, along mostly along Washington Street, stretching down, uh, really all the way down to the Battery, to Battery Park. Yes, Little Syria, or the Syrian Quarter, or the Syrian Colony. And since we're starting today's story in the late 19th century, we should also note if you're looking at that area, that there, of course, was no Battery Park City back then. Mm. This was a waterfront neighborhood with various tenements, shops, and cafes near a very active line of docks. But first, can we clear something up here? I think we need to talk about who these people were, where they came from, um, because we've said a number of times already, Syrian. 
Um, but this is a term that has changed a bit, right? We're not talking about people from necessarily the, the modern country of Syria. That's right. Uh, we actually need to just eliminate any preconceived notions and feelings generally about this area of the Middle East because many of the country boundaries that exist today were created by European powers following World War One. We're actually taking you back to the 1870s. Okay. And the people we're speaking about today are from a region called Greater Syria, which was comprised of today's Israel, Palestine, Jordan, Lebanon, modern Syria, and even some parts of southern Turkey. So people coming here from some of the world's oldest cities. Cities from the ancient times, right? Jerusalem, Aleppo, Palmyra, Beirut, Damascus. Um, the source of many great world religions, of course, emanate from this region. By the time of our story, in the mid-19th century, the area had actually been part of the Ottoman Empire for over four centuries. So, so this is a much older region um, with a vast history that, that occurred well before its current boundaries. And so then who precisely was immigrating to the United States from this region? Well, this is another little twist in our modern conception of the Middle East here, because the first Syrian immigrants to the United States were mostly Christian. By the time of this story, only about a fifth of the population of greater Syria was Christian, and they were actually spread out among different denominations. Syrian Orthodox Christians, Maronite Christians from the Mount Lebanon region, and Syrian Melkites or Byzantine Rite Catholics. After all, you've got literally hundreds of years of foreign influences upon this region, so, so the spiritual beliefs are going to be numerous as well. And were there also Muslim and Jewish immigrants from Syria at the time? There would be a few, but not in numbers that will affect the story that we're telling today. Obviously, there will be a very rich Muslim community in New York that forms starting in the early 20th century. But for the place that we're speaking about, Little Syria or the Syrian Quarter, it's primarily Christians. And what were their motivations for coming here? Did it have something to do um, with the fact that they were Christian? Some immigrants were escaping religious persecution at this time, and certainly the American press of the late 19th century would often characterize Christian Syrian immigrants as coming here primarily because of religious persecution. But I think you have to turn to a more obvious reason why Syrians begin arriving here starting in the 1880s. The very same reason that most immigrants came to the United States, like the Italians who started to come over to America in even greater waves during the same decade. And that motivation, I'm assuming, would be to find work and to make money and to, to have a better life. Exactly. On a practical level, Syrian Christians had more contacts with Europe, in particular France and England, and many sought out European schools and universities. Many could also speak English. And there was also an English-speaking missionary presence in the region, you know, this being the Holy Land, after all. And that was another way that Syrians began considering the United States. And then there was another fascinating motivation that brought some Syrians to America for the very first time. That is world fairs. 
World's fairs? What, they were, they were c- coming over to visit the fair? They wanted to check out Statler's d- ginormous hotel? <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I'm, I'm serious here. World fairs in the 19th century shaped American opinions on cultures that were previously unknown to them. Impresarios like P.T. Barnum, for instance, would often do the same in his American museums. He would you know, present a person from a, quote, faraway culture mm-hmm. that would represent that culture, you know, to a paying audience, whether it be Japan or Brazil or Syria. You know, he would present them as curiosities or as mysterious or even sacred, somehow like an other. And the way these cultures would be viewed, uh, they would collectively be known as the Orient. And so then at World's Fairs, of course, which is tactically or theoretically bringing the world together, Orientalism set apart cultures as different from the Western world. And that all sounds, you know, pretty problematic. No? Oh, yes. Yeah, certainly today. And and while it, it definitely was a very exoticized way of viewing these cultures, it did allow visitors from those far-off places to display costumes and customs from their home places to to educate people, but it also allowed them to make profits. Oh, by like bringing items to sell at the fair, like from their homeland, souvenirs in this case, I guess, yeah. from the Holy Land? Yeah, I mean, you know, Syrian Christians had things that were very valuable to the mostly Christian visitors of the World's Fair. At the 1876 Philadelphia Centennial Exposition, Syrian merchants were there on hand, and they were selling Holy Land goods that were scooped up by Americans who were, you know, seeking things, quote, from the East. But this also introduced Middle East merchants to a whole new marketplace. They brought things like rugs, perfume, jewelry, rosaries, crosses, and even food, things that could have a spiritual connection for some here in the United States. And so, as an extension of this, it's really not a surprise to discover that many of the first immigrants to America from greater Syria sold wares from their country and then eventually other goods in a trade known as peddling. And as we discussed in our show last year on the Essex Market, Um, We talked extensively about the pushcart sellers on the Lower East Side, people from Eastern Europe who came over and were selling their wares and how the streets were transformed into kind of a marketplace of pushcarts. There is, however, a notable difference in Little Syria in that the Syrian immigrants, for the most part, were peddling outside of their neighborhoods. So they were taking their wares in in their back sacks and bags hopping on the elevated train and hitting uh, neighborhoods north, wealthier neighborhoods, where they would often go door to door and sell directly to outsiders or people who lived outside their their community, as opposed to the push cart peddlers on the Lower East Side, who were obviously selling mostly uh, to their own neighbors. That's a good point. Now, the first documented Syrian to immigrate to the United States uh, was a man named Yusuf Arbili who came into New York via the Castle Garden Processing Station in 1878. Now, he and his family did not stay in New York. But by the mid-1880s, you had larger numbers of Syrians moving and living in the city. Now, not, not in those Irish and Italian 
population numbers, mind you. Um, it was really about a few thousand by the early 20th century. Although many from this region were identified so differently through Ellis Island, you know, their records mm -hmm. were listed from all over the place. Sometimes they were even listed as Turkish, for instance. So it is hard to tell exactly the number, but generally speaking, they did not settle in the Lower East Side or Hell's Kitchen or any other immigrant neighborhood that we've spoken about, but in a different spot. That's right. They were moving into the Lower West Side neighborhood that we're calling Little Syria here, which was just a handful of blocks along Washington Street, stretching north from Battery Park, up, you know, north of Rector Street. So if I were to visit these streets, take a stroll down these streets in the 1890s, like what would I see? What would life be like here in this Syrian quarter? Well, judging from the rather limited number of photographs of the area, unlike, you know, the Lower East Side, which is very well documented, mm -hmm. we have not that many photographs. But those that exist today, Washington Street was, you know, lined with businesses and factories and tenements, which packed these immigrants into rather tight, overcrowded quarters. And judging from the newspaper reports that we can still find today, the streets were, you know, they were alive with residents speaking Arabic, um, stores and restaurants that were catering to the needs and the, the tastes of this largely foreign-born population all of which gave this neighborhood to any outsider passing through a rather exotic quality. Well, it sounds like it shares a lot of traits with other immigrant neighborhoods throughout the city. Yeah, several, but not all. Um, and this is a point that the author Linda K. Jacobs makes in her excellent 2015 book, Strangers in the West, The Syrian Colony of New York, 1880 to 1900. She writes, quote, Known as the Syrian Colony, or the Syrian Quarter, first by American newspapermen and then by the Syrians themselves, Lower Washington Street was not that different from other 19th century tenement neighborhoods. It was crowded, decrepit, dirty and noisy, and self-contained. Unlike those neighborhoods, however, it was little noticed by New Yorkers. There was no attention paid to the misery there. No crusading photographers like Jacob Rees arrived to take pictures of the slums, and no muckraking articles appeared in the press. Unless there was violence in the neighborhood, or a reporter ventured downtown to gawk at this strange other, the Syrian colony did not exist for New Yorkers. Well, that's an interesting point to make. Why do you think that the Syrian population located here in particular? Well, it was certainly convenient, right? Because it was just off a of Battery Park. Um, the Castle Garden Immigration Center was right there. And even once Ellis Island opened its immigration processing center in 1892, immigrants would still start their journeys down here at the base of Manhattan. Throughout the 19th century, Irish, German, Italians, and Jews, and others would make their way um, mostly up the eastern side to the first residential neighborhoods on that side, Five Points, Little Italy, Lower East Side. But some of those immigrants, especially the Irish, Germans, and others, would also settle in these first streets along the Lower West Side as well. There were, after all, a lot of jobs available for them on the docks. The docks, which were just a block away and stretched all along the waterfront. But then by the 1880s, as more Syrians started arriving, 
they would also move into this neighborhood along Washington Street, taking the place of some of those Irish and German and other immigrants who were living in the tenement buildings, especially along the eastern side of Washington Street. So it wasn't exclusively Syrians who moved into this area, but they were living alongside with uh, other Irish immigrants? Oh, yeah. In fact, there would be far more Irish living here than Syrians. And there would, there would be different boarding houses catering to the different ethnicities. I must imagine, though, after a weeks-long journey across the Atlantic Ocean to finally get out and find a neighborhood where people were speaking Arabic, where you could get a boarding house next to people who had similar experiences as you, and Mm -hmm. of course to experience food from your home country. Yeah, and this is the reason, you know, that there would be these ethnic enclaves, right? Finding others from your country or even your city could help you In all those ways, but also in securing housing and jobs and sending money back home, in finding a place of worship. And finding love, even. Yep, starting a family or starting a business. Unlike those other immigrant enclaves, Uh there is almost nothing left of the Syrian colony here. Mm -hmm. And kind of hard to, to imagine what their life would have been like. So were they living in tenements just like the other tenement districts in Manhattan? Well, yeah, kind of. Uh, Most lived in tiny rooms and buildings uh, that would be considered tenements. But unlike those on the Lower East Side, most of these here in Little Syria were not late 19th century buildings. The majority of the dwellings here in in the Syrian colony had been constructed in the early and mid 1800s as elegant single family row houses, you know, many in the federal style. But by the time of our story, in the 1880s and 90s, those families had long since moved on to neighborhoods farther uptown, um, away from the crowds and the, the diseases that were downtown. And their old homes had long since been divided and subdivided further into tiny apartments, most of which had inadequate airflow, inadequate light. So when you, when you see photographs of these tenements today, it's almost hard to imagine that they had once been elegant row houses mm-hmm. because their facades had also been altered. Um, they had made these horrible changes in order to add doorways for tenants and stores on the ground floor and in the basements. Um, and really, you know, changed in ways just to squeeze in as many pain tenants as possible. With side walls touching the next building, there was really only natural light in the front rooms and the back rooms, and that would leave many people without any light at all. And because most families rented only one room or or two rooms, entire families occupied single or double rooms without windows. And sometimes it wasn't even a family that was renting the room, but it was, you know, one renter who sublet space in his room to other renters. And it goes without saying that the plumbing was abysmal, I'm sure. Yeah, there were sinks, you know, that were communal, usually shared in the hallways. And in many buildings, the toilets were in fact privies uh, that were located outside in the backyard. So how quickly did the colony grow? Well, the growth was pretty slow in the 1880s, but there was rapid growth between 1890 and 1900 
by which time the Syrian population in New York City was about 1,800 people, according to the author Linda Jacobs. And interestingly, already by 1900, about a quarter of that population had moved to Brooklyn. These were, for the most part, families who had prospered and who could afford to leave. You know, they got out of this neighborhood, even if they would still come back to work or to worship on Washington Street. Others did live elsewhere in the city, but most of the population still did live along Washington Street and along its side streets. So that was the home life of the Syrian quarter. But of course, people shopped and ate at restaurants here and, you know, had a social scene out on the streets. Yeah, Syrian immigrants opened their own grocery stores along Washington Street, including Ibrahim Sahadi, who had arrived from Lebanon in the late 1880s and opened his first grocery store in 1897 at 92 Washington Street. And more on the Sahadi story a bit later. But what's important to note is that the shops of this area sold goods that were imported from the area of greater Syria that were foods and goods that would have been familiar to the people living here. Yeah, spices and nuts and grains, tobacco. Um, But they also sold household goods, uh, gifts, hardware, clothing. And these shops would often be visited by journalists of the day and described in ways to make them sound incredibly exotic and foreign. I found um, a 1905 article in the New York Sun titled Syrian Quarter Delicacies, Dishes to Please the Nose as Well as the Palate, Um, all about the exotic foods and the spices and oils for sale in these shops. They write, American tourists in Lower Washington Street especially if they be of the feminine gender, often stop before the windows of queer little Syrian groceries and confectioner shops to speculate on the quaint edibles for sale and to wonder if they are pleasant to the taste. And I'm sure they were also quite taken with all of the cafes and restaurants of the street. Yeah, all of them, and the bakeries too, were exotic. And reading them today can be a bit problematic. But I'm going to read from an article published in the New York Times titled New York Syrian Quarter in their August 20th, 1899 Illustrated magazine. The author Cromwell Child offers some observations first on the beauty of the women in the neighborhood, which I'll skip over, um, but he finds them fetching, but then takes the reader on a tour of the neighborhood along with his local guide, Michael Kahlo. Michael meets me at the doorway of Sahadi's shop at the corner of Rector Street, where I've been sipping Syrian Arak, a glorified absinthe, beady yet divine to the taste. A wonderful shop, this of the merchant Sahadi, with native wines and liqueurs, American groceries, swords and lamps, glass bracelets of many colors, oriental embroideries, water pipes, and their fixings. He continues later, There are plenty of low-grade groceries in restaurants, for, of course, the greater number of the colony's 3,000 Syrians are poor. But many of these Orientals are well-off, comparatively. Later, he points out an Arabic-speaking Syrian priest who pushes by them on the sidewalk. He follows him into the church. His church is easy to enter, 
It is a room on the second floor of one of these dingy tenements that are shops and mercantile establishments below, dwellings above. No other sanctuary in New York is half so gorgeous and gay. The end of the room where the priest stands, the altar, is paneled completely with sacred paintings. In brilliant colors are depicted the agony of the Christ, the mighty saints of the Church of the East. A table holds many candles to be bought day after day as the votive offerings of the worshipers. The wall is thickly covered with crudely painted, highly colored pictures, large and small of other saints, martyrs, and religious scenes. But the author seems especially taken by the restaurants in the neighborhood, which, after an evening meal had been served, became cafes. His favorite is Arda's, which was located in the former parlor of a row house which had been turned into a boarding house and named for Arda, who was considered the mayor of Washington Street. He feasted at Arda's and rather comically translated the menu, which he found completely confounding. It included such exotic dishes at the time as okra, a vegetable resembling beans, stuffed grape leaves, stuffed eggplant, and other dishes that today are totally recognizable and delightful. But he liked it, writing, Even to an American palate, artist cooking is tasty and delicate. It has a fragrance all its own, neither French nor Teutonic, something quite apart. He's even more perplexed trying to describe the bread he ate with his meal. It's like a gigantic circular corn cake. It is of wheat, puffs at the center, and when broken is discovered to be little more than a well-browned outer crust. <laughs> oh, to have been there for his very first experience with a pita. Oh, well, he positively fawned over his baklava experience. <laughs> but um, it's interesting, you know, that the restaurants then transformed into cafes after dinner. And, you know, as red Syrian wine was poured and men started smoking, um, he said, from, from water pipes and playing chess and other games uh, late into the night. What was his name? Cromwell Child? Well, he certainly yes. covered a lot of territory here. <laughs> yeah, and already this is how he described it in 1899. Um, he wrote that there were 3,000 Syrians in the colony, although uh, Linda Jacobs, who's done all of this extensive work, put the number in 1900 at about 1800. But a quarter of whom have already moved to Brooklyn at this time. Yes, even if, you know, the bigger community was still based here on Washington Street, merchants could live in Brooklyn and then commute over by ferry. In a 1903 article that I found in the New York Sun, the author there describes the Syrian colony as stretching, quote, from the Battery to Albany Street, but, quote, in time, it will be transferred to Brooklyn. Syrians have already spread along President and Henry Streets in that borough, and all the well-to-do men in the colony are already moving over there. And actually, soon that colony in Brooklyn then would become known as Little Syria. But Manhattan's Syrian quarter leaves a surprising literary legacy, which we'll turn to after this. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. 
Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. Take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery+. Plus. Now, even though the Syrian quarter of Manhattan was much smaller than, say, the Italian or the Eastern European Jewish district, it did serve as the central location for Syrian-American culture in the whole United States, well into the 20th century. I've even seen it referred to as the mother colony for Syrian-Americans. And one very natural way that they were able to create this far-flung connection with people all over the country um, was through newspapers. Yeah, by the turn of the century, there were hundreds of publications, right, coming out of New York mm -hmm. City in dozens of different languages. Um, were these Syrian publications being printed in English or in Arabic? Well, some would be entirely in English, but a large number were in Arabic using Arabic set type imported and even occasionally smuggled out of the Middle East, depending on the restrictions of exporting at certain times. And by type, you're talking setting type by hand, mm -hmm. in this case, in cursive, right, Arabic, which I can't even imagine how time consuming that would be to, yeah. to set that type extremely difficult. But one 
little Syria newspaper in particular would change the world of Arabic publishing forever. And that was a newspaper here called Al Hoda. Now, the paper started in Philadelphia in 1898 by editor Naum McCarzel, but it moved to New York in 1902 and into offices at 81 West Street, where it became America's most prominent Arab-American newspaper. Keeping it all in the family, he would pass it on later to his brother, Saloum, who would then later pass it to his daughter, Mary. Believe it or not, Al-Hoda remained in publication until 1971. Wow. By which time, they were clearly no longer setting all the type by hand. I, I'm hoping. No, uh, they didn't. Uh, Naum and, and his brother, Salom Markarzal, changed Arabic publishing by creating the very first Arabic linotype machine in 1912, which automated the typesetting system and allowed for extremely quick page layouts. In 1948, the New York Times interviewed Salam, who was then the editor of the paper, um, interviewed him on the newspaper's 50th anniversary. Quote, Salom said that the most significant milestone in the paper's long history was the installation of the first Arabic linotype. Mr. McCarzel himself had adapted the linotype to Arabic characters in a cellar at 55 Washington Street. This invention made possible and immeasurably stimulated the growth of Arabic journalism in the Middle East. That is so cool. It's also amazing to think, you know, that there was a Syrian-American intellectual scene that existed mm -hmm. in the cafes here on Washington Street, too. Were publishers, were they tapping into that scene? Absolutely. They were one of the leading voices of Syrian-American intellectual and political thought. And Al-Hoda was one of the most prominent publishers. They even gave a few women a voice in the newspaper, including a young journalist named Marie Alziz Al-Khoury. Now, she was in her early 20s when she began writing for Al-Hoda. Then, sadly, her husband died in 1904, and then she had to go back into the family business to earn a living. That family business being jewelry. So her family first opened that jewelry business here on Washington Street as an extension of her father's peddling trade. Okay. So Marie took over the family business. Flash forward to the 1950s, and Mrs. El Khoury had become one of the most in-demand jewelers on Fifth Avenue, quote, a rendezvous for New York society women shopping for jewelry of the finest design. 1950s society women of Fifth Avenue um, makes me think of Truman Capote and his swans, I'm sure, <laughs> visiting Mrs. El Khoury's shop. Yeah, picking up brooches, bracelets, what have you. Well, speaking of Capote, speaking of great writers, actually, El Hoda fostered the talents of many of America's first Lebanese writers, including Amin Rahani, who was a poet, novelist, and intellectual who frequented many of the cafes of Little Syria here. In 1911, he published his great work, The Book of Khalid, considered to be the very first English novel by an Arab American. Did he write about his experience actually in the neighborhood? Well, in a novelized form, yes. He writes of the Syrian quarter and of arriving in New York Harbor as a new immigrant. 
through his character Shakib, who is describing the harbor entrance uh, to his sluggish friend Khalid. Quote, And is this the gate of paradise or the port of some subterrestrial city guarded by the jinn? What manifestations of industrial strength, what monstrosities of wealth and power are here? These giant structures tickling heaven's side, these cable bridges spanning rivers, uniting cities, and this super-terrestrial goddess, torch in hand. Wake up, Khalid, and behold these wonders. Salam, this enchanted city. There is the Brooklyn Bridge, and, and here is the Statue of Liberty, which people speak of, and which are as famous as the Cedars of Lebanon. Wow. And when did the Book of Khalid come out? Um, that was the year 1911. The book contained illustrations by another Lebanese-American writer and artist, Khalil Gibran. Now, Tom, I swear, I did not plan this. I did not plan Uh-oh. this. But Gibran, he didn't live here in the Syrian quarter, but rather he lived in Greenwich Village at the 10th Street Studio which was a dedicated art studio building, which, as you, if you listen to the last show on Audrey Munson, this was a place in which she modeled for many famous artists. And, wow. in fact, she modeled here in the early 1910s at the same time that he was living here. It really is a melting pot, Greg. <laughs> and it makes sense because he was an illustrator, too. You know, maybe, maybe they met. Maybe he painted or drew her. Yeah, I don't, I'm not sure. And so why is his name, why is it so familiar today? Well, many years later, in 1923, his book, The Prophet, was published. And this became a huge, huge publishing hit. I mean, it was a phenomenon of the day, comprised of several poetic fables that are very spiritual in nature, although today it it reads like a self-help book or even an advice book. And it's still in print. It sold millions and millions of copies over the year. In particular, in the 1960s, it was extremely popular then. Many listeners right now actually probably have a copy of this book on their bookshelves now. And Gibran was part of the intellectual scene down here in Little Syria. That's amazing. Mm -hmm. A neighborhood that no longer exists. So what happened here? Why did it vanish? Well, I had mentioned, you know, that prosperous residents here had already moved away, you know, many to Brooklyn, where they were part of that Little Syria. New Syrian immigrants continued to arrive throughout the first decades of the 20th century and move right in, take their places in those boarding houses. However, immigration laws in the 1920s changed, became much more restrictive, including two Syrian immigrants. And so far, fewer immigrants were arriving to keep this community growing. And did some of these Syrian businesses continue to operate in the neighborhood? Well, some did, um, but many moved to Brooklyn, although many of them moved moved on up the island into Midtown. I mean, you mentioned, you know, the jewelry boutique along Fifth Avenue. As they, they made it, they moved in, they assimilated into other neighborhoods. So the neighborhood here was shrinking. And then in the 1940s, our friend, Parks Commissioner, Planning Commissioner, Robert Moses, 
drew up plans for his massive Brooklyn Battery Bridge, which would have, if it had been built, demolished much of the entire neighborhood, including most of Battery Park and, of course, Little Syria. He was ultimately forced to settle on a tunnel instead. And in 1946, landlords on Lower Washington Street were served eviction notices that their properties were being seized for the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel's construction. And you'll, you know, if you look at a map today, you'll see that the tunnel's entrance ramp cuts straight across Lower Washington Street and then runs several blocks along the street's eastern edge. And was there a big fight over the construction of this? Well, Robert Caro in The Power Broker details, you know, the fights that were waged by early preservationists to save Battery Park and Castle Clinton, uh, which they succeeded in doing by forcing a tunnel to be constructed. But you didn't see much of a fight, actually, to save the Syrian colony. And looking through articles at the time, you realize that the, the bigger story here, the story everybody was interested in, was whether or not the tunnel would be constructed because it meant jobs, right? And it would be good for the city to employ all of these people. It was infrastructure week, after all. (laughs) Yeah, people wanted to get back to work. They weren't talking about preserving, you know, the remnants of an ethnic enclave that got in the way of a tunnel. And in fact, so many of those blocks of Little Syria then were razed to the ground in the late 1940s. And then if that wasn't enough, about two decades later, in 1965, this city would seize more blocks of Washington Street north of here as they began demolition for the construction of the World Trade Center. So more or less, the Washington Street that we have been describing today as the center of Syrian New York culture is almost completely wiped away. It's a completely different place than it was many, many decades before. Yes, although there are a few buildings that remain from this period, actually only three, which are located on the eastern side of Washington Street between Rector and Carlisle Streets. There, today, you will find the former St. George's Syrian Catholic Church at 103 Washington. Now, this building is amazing, Um, Because it was constructed as a three-story home around 1812, which was then converted into a boarding house, right, for immigrants in the 1850s. And then it was expanded with additional floors in 1869. In the 1920s, the Syrian Greek Catholic Church moved into the building and then hired an architect to rework the facade into a church, Jumping forward to the 1980s, the lower level was then turned into an Irish pub. And today, there are two restaurants operating out of the ground floor of this building. Fortunately, the exterior was made a New York City landmark in 2009. I actually stop by quite a lot, even beyond the research of this show, because there's a nice Chinese restaurant. Um, food's really delicious there. And also, it's a place where it has like an operating bar. So it's it's definitely a far cry from what it used to be. Um, but it is a really intriguing building and very, very different from anything else around it. And, and next door to it is an old settlement house, um, which has served various purposes in the community. And next to that, up on the corner, is is a later tenement building, Uh, from the 1880s, which is still an apartment building today. 
But that's it. This block is surrounded then by modern structures, a Holiday Inn, office towers, parking garage, etc. The group Washington Street Historical Society, WSHS, was founded in 2013 with a mission, they write, to, quote, restore the forgotten history of the earliest Arabic-speaking community in the United States back into the great American story. You can learn more about the Washington Street Historical Society at their website, wshsnyc.org. However, there are a few tasty legacies of this particular neighborhood, and most of those exist on Atlantic Avenue today. Today, you'll find many Middle Eastern shops and restaurants um, on Atlantic Avenue. That is the, today, it's the border between Brooklyn Heights and Cobble Hill, but it traces back to the original Middle Eastern community, which settled here. And this includes, of course, Sahadis. And Greg and I headed out to Sahadi's headquarters, their main office and warehouse and roasting plant, which is actually today located on 43rd Street in Sunset Park. And we sat down with Pat Whalen, president of Sahadi Foods, and the husband of Christine Sahadi Whalen, of the fourth generation of Sahadis operating the business. She was not able to be there because she's on a book tour. She just released a cookbook this week. Literally, her cookbook, Flavors of the Sun, the Sahadi's Guide to Understanding, Buying, and Using Middle Eastern Ingredients, came out the day we were sitting down with Pat. But we met with him to discuss Sahadi's rich history and connection to Little Syria. Pat, thank you for joining us on the Bowery Boys. Thanks. Glad to be here. So needless to say, this is a family-operated business from the very beginning. Oh, absolutely. We, we talked about it last night. Apparently, it's a fifth-generation now mm-hmm. family business. And I had to count it off on my fingers to go, oh, right, the kids. <laughs> and, and that's starting at Abraham and, and going all the way to your kids. Yeah, and that's that goes back, obviously, a long way. Um, I think it's uh, uh, 1895, actually, mm-hmm. when they opened on uh, Washington Street. So then Abraham and his family opened up the first uh, Sahadi grocery store in the late 1890s. Can you take us inside that store? What would it have been like? What would they have been selling? Oh, my goodness. Well, any recent immigrant that comes to the U.S. wants something from home. Mm-hmm. So it's not going to be typically what you see if you go to an international store today where it'd be just groceries. You'd find everything. You'd find newspapers. You'd find hard goods. You'd find clothes. You'd find whatever you could possibly find. I mean, we still have stuff from the 40s where we were selling like drums and <laughs> backgammon boards. And you look at it, really, I think <laughs> half of the list that we were selling was, was not food. Mm. It was just whatever you could get from home. And a lot of these places started... You know, Little Italy, Five Points, Little Syria, and they got whatever they could get from their home country. They wanted to feel like they were at home. Yeah. And obviously, they were also including tastes of home as well. Oh, absolutely. Whatever you could get. I mean, obviously, it'd be difficult to get a fresh good. So whatever you can, or even to today, it's easy to travel through food. Yeah. It's easy to go home through food. What's so interesting about some of the first foods that were sort of brought over and mm-hmm. were sold in areas like Syria and brought over by these Syrian immigrants, so many of them are 
kind of mainstream in oh, yeah. American food today, right? And so it's so fascinating to think that like this is where it started, at least for in terms of being introduced into this country. Absolutely. And I think that's the cool part is that this nucleus of what happened around Washington Street in Lower Manhattan was really how Middle Eastern food or food from the Gulf region was introduced to the U.S. I mean, it was it's it's amazing to think that it started there. It's kind of amazing to think that Sahadis was part of that. You know, yeah. you know, in Abraham's obituary published on October 9th, nineteen fifty-two, in the New York Times, they mentioned that Sahadis was responsible for introducing America to the pistachio. <laughs> <laughs> is that possibly true? I mean, we know you that know, obituaries uh, are sometimes exaggerated. I don't know if that's true. I'll be honest with you. Uh, and you certainly sell and manufacture pistachio nuts today, of course. Yeah, and that's kind of a weird thing that you roll the clock forward 120 years, and we're literally still roasting pistachios here in New York City, which is wow. really odd. In this building, In right? this building, downstairs. We can downstairs, walk down there like later. Where we are right now. Where you're sitting right now, yes. There's, there's a giant <laughs> machine down there. I don't know if we're making pistachios today, but it's definitely roasting something. Back to um, Abraham's story, though, you mentioned back in Lebanon. So he immigrated from Lebanon. From Zali, Lebanon. And and believe it or not, there's still Sahadis in Zali, Lebanon. There's still family there. (laughs) Wow. But he was soon joined by other family members. Well, it was was roughly 20 years later where Wade came into the business. So his nephew went and started working for him in the grocery store when Mm -hmm. he came to the U.S. Like, Like all immigrants, you know, you come, you look for family, and they try to help you out. And over time, Wade became like a junior partner and and worked his way into the business. And as the family history goes, they had a a parting of ways (laughs) (laughs) in the early 1940s. And, And they parted ways in in a very interesting style. They literally like divided the inventory up. Like we not have extra pounds. Of, yes, exactly. We have extra pounds of pistachios, extra pounds of olives, extra pounds. They chopped it up and Wade moved down the block like four or five stores away and opened Sahadi Importing Company. Mm. So up to then, it was A. Sahadi, which mm. was Abraham Sahadi. Mm-hmm. And then when they split, you had A. Sahadi down the block and you had Sahadi Importing Company a few stores away. Selling, selling the same kinds of merchandise? Of course. <laughs> Grief. But then it's Wade. Well, it's like Arthur Avenue, and, you know, it's the same oh, thing. Oh, yeah, yeah. But then it's Wade's, Sahadi's importing company, that would eventually move to Atlantic Avenue and exactly. to the Middle Eastern community there. And Wade is second generation, but the direct line to who's currently running the store today. So that explains, then, why I was reading that to the end of his life, then, Abraham's store continued to reside on Washington Street. So yes. even while the other Sahadis moved, that would be Wade's that moved to Atlantic Avenue. Yes. And I, th- I think what happened is in the 1940s into the 50s, Brooklyn Battery Tunnel was coming. Mm-hmm. They demolished eminent domain a lot of the stores. It's my understanding that the Sahadi Importing Company store is basically where the battery parking garage is today when you mm-hmm. come out of the Brooklyn Battery Tunnel. And a lot of the people on that street that were still existing in business ended up hopping the river to Atlantic Avenue. And they all basically settled right along that strip with the same concept. The goods were coming in to the waterfront in Brooklyn. Mm -hmm. So as an importer, and this is where all your lifeblood is, there was no containers back then. 
Your stuff mm-hmm. came in break bulk. Your stuff came open. If you wanted to make sure you still had your pistachio nuts, <laughs> you got down to the boat. <laughs> I mean, people forget because, of course, there's nice, lovely Brooklyn Bridge Park down there. Oh, but yeah. like Sahadi's is only just a few blocks from the waterfront. And exactly. so that's, of course, they would have gotten those goods directly and sold them directly into the store. Yeah. And, as, and that's exactly what happened. They literally would come down the block with the goods. They would go down into the basement of the store. It was only one storefront at the time, 187 Atlantic Avenue. And they, I believe they opened that in 1948. From that storefront, and, and prior to that, even when they were lower Manhattan, you were still doing retail. You still had the walk-in. You still had the community, whatever you needed. And then you had other ethnic communities popping up around the country. And they would reach out to the importers who were in New York to get whatever goods they had to sell to their little community popping up in whatever state, town it was. So Sahadi has been sending... Middle Eastern goods all over the country for many, many years, going back to probably the 20s and Mm -hmm. 30s. How does the business evolve here on Atlantic Avenue? So they're here now in the late 1940s, Mm -hmm. um, but it grows pretty quickly over the next like two or three decades, right? Yeah. Wade ended up passing away suddenly. And Charlie, my father-in-law, was a very young man at the time and had to uh, leave college and take over the family business. He was the, you know, it was the lifeblood. It fed the family. He was the oldest of three boys. And he was a young man at the time in his early Mm -hmm. 20s. And when his dad passed away suddenly, he had to jump in there and basically run the family business that he knew nothing about. So he was able to wrench it back up. The brothers came and helped after school. Very typical ethnic family story. Everybody worked. Mm -hmm. (laughs) You know, after school, in the basement, whatever you did. And then by the 1980s, the business expanded even further into Sunset Park. Yeah, what they did in, in, as I said, they were doing a wholesale business at the time and running a wholesale business on Atlantic Avenue. It It was different back in the 60s and the early 70s. New York was very, very different back then. So wouldn't be bad to have a forklift down on the street, down in, in, in Atlantic Avenue. It seems weird today. But of course. Yeah. Yes, that's exactly what it was. People would think it's some kind of an art happening. No, no, no. exactly. They'd be painted or something like that, yeah. like the cows. Um, but, you know, they really ran trucks right down the street there. Yeah. And eventually it got to be too much to run up and down those sidewalk grates in the basement. And they bought a little warehouse on Bergen Street. And then they ended up buying a warehouse in Sunset Park. And I believe it was 1983, where they expanded the wholesale business even more. And at the same time, Atlantic Avenue was changing. Brooklyn was changing. This is not like all ethnic communities, mm-hmm. not just Middle Eastern, you know. And it's the same as Little Italy. It's the same in places as other people moved into the neighborhood. They were smart enough to see that and start adapting what they offered. What were some of the new items that showed up to, well, to meet this new demand? All of a sudden, you had olive oil from Italy, cheeses from Greece, pine nuts from Spain Mm. instead of Lebanon. And as they expanded more and more and more, it became a very interesting mix of ethnic Middle Eastern looking for authentic goods and curious Americans, Mm -hmm. for Mm -hmm. lack of a better term. But every ethnic group that was exploring some food that the Sahadis thought was a normal, everyday staple but was exotic to somebody else. But as they came in, this new customer wanted other stuff. So Sahadi started to shift from being a very true ethnic catering to one community store to more of an international store, more of an inviting store. And I think that's probably why today on Atlantic Avenue of all the stores that are down there, 
Zahadis grew the quickest because it was more um, welcoming to the community growing up around it. My wife, Christine, who I've, I've known since high school, always a curious cook. And I think it's probably growing up around the store, growing up around the ingredients. You know, she made a comment the other day, it's all about the ingredients. And she's right. You know, we take it for granted. We have access to Aleppo pepper. You know, you open up yeah. our cupboard at home and it's like, <laughs> it's like a cook's dream. Yeah. Was Sahadi's business affected in any way by sort of recent troubles in the Middle East? Of course, I'm speaking generally of yes. the traumas in Syria in the of past course. few years. Uh, you know, uh, obviously the, the part of the family is Syrian. So losing Aleppo is viscerally hard and, 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 and tough. And obviously, Lebanon's in a bad shape right now. Uh, mm -hmm. The last couple of years, their financial crisis, they're really suffering right now. We're having the most difficulty I've been that we've ever had sourcing product right now. Mm -hmm. You know, it started with trying to adapt right in the beginning of the, the coronavirus pandemic. Um, but lately, obviously, we lost all our Syrian product mm -hmm. for a portion of time. But all of that conflict affects flow of goods and right now i can tell you getting stuff out of lebanon when they they don't have electricity all day and we can't get containers in there and they blew up the port and right. just they're a resilient country <laughs> they've been knocked down a lot lately so mm -hmm. so how did we get here to this spot today because there is a second and pretty new sahadis over at industry city yes and that was another turning point in, in the Sahadi history. We, the warehouse moved here in 1983. In um, 83, you know, and 91, we got the two businesses running. We end up building this warehouse. In um, 2001 is when we opened. Two years of construction, abandoned building, got partially open July 1st, 2001. Obviously, September 11th, 2001. Middle Eastern food demand drops like a stone, <laughs> mm -hmm. you know, and that was a very interesting time for us. And probably the first time I realized how much people love, viscerally love Sahadis mm -hmm. was right after September 11th. And, what did you see? You know, they got a little concerned and they shut the store down. And when they reopened the next day, there were customers waiting to just give them a hug. Mm -hmm. That was it. And it was it was really a special moment in our lives to realize how much people care about us. I mean, we were getting phone calls from all over the country. Mm. Are you okay? Are you okay? Are you okay? What can we do to help you? It was it was a weird time in New York. You know, obviously a very very sad time. Um, but it kind of reassured us that we what we do day to day, which we don't think about, means something to somebody. Yeah. And people are very attached to it. And that there's also comfort in food. Yeah, there is. And that's kind of exactly how we are where we are today. Mm -hmm. You know, when we were sitting down and looking at small business and mom and pops and, and you know, let's let's be blunt. New York City's changing. Yeah. It's very, very difficult to be as a mom and pop store. The coffee shops are closing. Starbucks are opening, you know, and, and you're seeing that all over as all these different small family businesses disappear. It's very rare from go generation one to generation two. I mean, literally, when I was in the car last night realizing we're Generation 5, mm. I was like, whoa. <laughs> that's, that's a rare era we're five at right and now. And, and actually, Generation 5 of a grocer. Yeah. Right? 
weird, right? I mean, that's that's unthinkable, really, right? In, in 2021, so you, you, you've made it work by being manufacturers and distributors, too. Yeah, I think so. But I, I think really the heart and soul today is, is when Christine came in the business in the 1980s and took this ethnic grocery store and did something very, very unique. They opened the deli. Mm. That was rare. That didn't really exist. And that was them trusting this young teenage girl uh, to kind of create. Mm. And basically, it was just making the hummus and stuff like that that you were buying the ingredients to take home. Well, that opened the door even more to make it very approachable for somebody who would walk into this intimidating store and just pick up food. Mm-hmm. And when did the store in the Industry City uh, officially open its doors? <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> in, in typical Sahadi timing fashion, it opened in September 2019, mm. based all around shared plates and hospitality. <laughs> Obviously, in March of 2020, yeah. that all went out the window. <laughs> Cafe plans went in the toilet. Yeah, <laughs> But it has reopened. It actually never closed. The one thing I'm very, very proud of is that our team rallied, our family rallied. Obviously, we had challenges like everybody else. And while we had to shut the Atlantic store for, for in-store shopping because yeah. 70-year-old store, the, your nooks and crannies and tightness. and <laughs> Not much social distancing. In it. An intimate experience. Yes. Which is, and, what, which is the pleasure about it. But yeah. yeah <laughs> and, and, but as you know, we had to, we had to adapt. And, yes. and yes. I think it was only a month or two where we pulled the plug and said, we, we can't contain this anymore. It's not safe. Mm-hmm. The IC store never closed. Well, Pat Whelan, thank you so much for taking us inside Sahadi's family business. Yes. Uh, it's been a thank real pleasure. You. Yeah, thank you so much. This has been uh, wonderful. And um, we're going to head over to the Industry City store now, I think. Awesome. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Please visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, where there will, be m- there will be featured many, believe it or not, historic images of the Syrian quarter and the people who lived there. You can also find us on Instagram. Facebook, and Twitter, and we hope that you'll join us at patreon.com slash Boys, where for just a small donation a month, uh, you're helping to produce the show. And actually, we have three very good reasons why you should join us on Patreon this month. One, we released a new episode of The Takeout, which is our after-show conversation, which relates to the last episode on Audrey Munson, but we also have a little surprise in that show. Um, a brand new Bowery Boys-related spinoff show that's coming to you in late September. So get the details by listening to that. The second thing is that we have a brand new episode of the Bowery Boys Movie Club coming your way very shortly. So, um... We're going to make a connection in that film between two different cultures. (laughs) And finally, number three, joining us on Patreon is the best way to get news on tickets for live events, which we are finally doing. In fact, we haven't even spoken about it on this show, but we are returning to Joe's Pub for a special Halloween ghost story show on October 31st. We didn't mention it on this show because those who support us on Patreon got news of the tickets first and scooped them all up because it's a smaller <laughs> venue, you know, but it was only it's only for one night. So have we mentioned that we love our patrons? <laughs> we love our patrons. Thank you for getting those tickets. I mean, it's uh, we're excited to go back to the stage. But anyway, join us on Patreon to get that information first. That's patreon.com slash Bowery Boys.
Thank you so much for your support. We're also back in the streets with Bowery Boys Walks. It's an exciting time to finally be able to lead people on small group walking tours around the city. We're so excited about that. Our guides are really are really thrilled to be taking people through Central Park, the Lower East Side, up Fifth Avenue, Greenwich Village, etc. They're also doing in-person private tours, which is great, including for, you know, small organizations. You know, working with companies to offer their employees something really different. So you can learn more about that at BoweryBoysWalks.com. So thank you very much for listening. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Thank you.